Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, in Brandon Taylor's new collection of short stories, Filthy Animals, characters navigate the tension between giving in to ferocious impulses or staying tightly controlled as they seek connection and belonging. Taylor's debut novel, Real Life, was a breakout success. We'll talk with Taylor about the craft of writing. Then, pop star Britney Spears apologized to fans today for pretending to be okay for the last two years. Earlier this week, Spears testified about the physical and emotional abuse she says she suffered under 13 years of conservatorship. We look at how her situation has put more scrutiny on California's laws. Stay with us. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Filthy Animals is the title of Brandon Taylor's new short story collection that explores human desires for connection, even violence, and the tension it creates in relationships between lovers, friends, strangers. A New York Times review by John Paul Brammer describes it as making, quote, human contact seem like a thrilling horror story. As such, it speaks to both the anxiety and allure of getting back out there. Brandon Taylor, welcome to Forum. Thank you so much for having me. Really glad to have you. And that Brammer quote, Brammer speaking to either the thrill or trepidation that people are feeling these days about emerging from the pandemic and having more social contact. And it made me wonder, did you, in did the past year, did it figure into your writing of your stories for Filthy Animals at all? Or was that all done by, uh, by before the pandemic? So the the actual drafting process was done, but I was revising it while we were all sort of hunkering down at home. And mm-hmm. um, while I myself was sort of grappling with some personal health crises precipitated oh. by the pandemic. And so all of that anxiety and and fear and uncertainty certainly, I think, you know, bled into the stories as I was revising them and changing them. So, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I'm sorry to hear about your your personal health crisis, but I must say you certainly do capture a character like Lionel in that first story of your book who feels both incredibly vulnerable about going to a social gathering, but is also at the same time lonely and, and wants to be around people. And I was wondering if you wouldn't mind just reading that first page of your book for us. Oh, it would be a pleasure. 
Lionel had been out of the hospital for only a few days when the potluck invitation came. The host lived in the first floor apartment of a near east side duplex separated by a tiny cul-de-sac from the wide bottom cottages that fronted Lake Monona. Noise of an undifferentiated party variety drifted out into the deep blue cold, meeting Lionel under the sunroom window where he had stopped to peer inside. He felt powerfully anonymous out there in the dark, looking in on all of them. He's just standing out there. <laughs> I think we all I think we all have had that moment where it's like, do I really want to go into this party with all these people? Yes, even though I'm standing out there in this cold. And and it is incredible in reading that first story called Potluck, how much there is in that tension and how deep you get into it. Like you almost feel like you have to look away from Lionel and spare him from your gaze because it's so intense in terms of revealing his emotions. Um, and, you know, one of our producers is a huge fan of yours and just has been wondering about the precision with which you write and how much of the way you do character, the way you do metaphor, the way you describe scenes just kind of pours out of you. Or is it, you know, like a stroke of, I guess, inspiration or is it something that you really um, work over and over again to get to a very specific uh, description? I think it's I think it's a little bit of both. I think that the initial, you know, the that the first flush of drafting always seems like it comes in a torrent for me, it, you know, and so I'll get the initial sort of starting conditions of it. But it's really only through revision that I feel like I get to go back in there and peel away the layers and sort of work it layer by layer to to work increasingly towards something really particular and specific, you know, like it's not enough to just leave it as he was a little nervous to go to a potluck, but really to figure out why this particular character is nervous and anxious about this particular gathering at this moment in his life. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, a character standing outside of a potluck does, you know, it's like a really interesting start for a story, but my goal in revision is always to work toward the specific and the particular. And I think that that's where, the real resonance in literature comes from is when the writing takes you into a very specific subjectivity. Yeah. And speaking about working things, I, I read tweets of yours that you said you worked on the titular story, Filthy Animals, over the course of five years, and that you were nervous about releasing it. And I was wondering if you could tell us um, what that story is about and why you were nervous. <laughs> oh, yeah, certainly. Um, so the titular story, Filthy Animals, is about um, a group of young friends in a Birmingham, Alabama suburb. And one of the characters, it's his birthday, and he and his closest friend decide that they're going to go out, you know, on a on a weekend night and get into some trouble to celebrate the birthday. And what the main character hasn't revealed to his friends is that his parents are about to send him to a boot camp um, in Idaho. And that's all very nerve wracking for him as he's also trying to grapple with, you know, his romantic and, and sexual attraction to his close male friends and like what that means for him and stuff like that. And I was nervous about that story because the characters get into a great deal of trouble, you know, like they 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 end up fighting and there's all this stuff 
um, all this violence in that story. And it was just a complicated line to thread because some of the characters have done some like truly awful, monstrous things. And it was just hard to get that right. Like it was so hard to figure out like, am I condoning this by writing it? Am I, Mm. am I, you know, making this other character suffer just to be a a plot line in someone else's life? Am I honoring all the characters and their humanity? And I didn't have any easy answers for that. And it took me a long time to figure out the moral framework of that story and to figure out what it was I was trying to do and trying to say, but yeah, I was, I was so nervous. I was so nervous. Yeah, you ended that Twitter thread, I believe, with by saying that the moral center of a story changes as you change. I mean, where did you ultimately land on that? I, I guess I'm also curious, maybe at the beginning of the five years, if the draft looked remarkably different in terms of that question, right, of the violence and how you how you deal with it through the characters um, to, to now. Yeah, it totally did. I, you know, the I think that the moral center of that story, when I first wrote it, the moral center was very much this, you know, this idea that the main character is, is in love with his best friend and like he finds out something that the best friend did that was like really bad and evil and a crime and he's got to like figure it out. And so the tragedy of that story used to be that this guy he loved had done a bad thing and now he can't love him as much anymore. And I was like, okay, but like, what about the victim of this character's crime? (laughs) You know, like what about the person who has to pay the moral price for, for what that character did to them? And so then I thought, okay, that's a really simplistic view. It's not a very, you know, robust moral vision. Like the tragedy of this story can't just be that, the guy he loved is kind of tarnished now. There's something, there must be some deeper, more human question at work in this story. And it just took a long time to figure out what that was. And for me, it's really this question of all of these characters have been, have been affected by the, the strict patriarchal society in which they've been raised. And the real tragedy of that story is that those characters, it's the only life they've ever known. And, they come to realize like, oh, what I've been given is maybe not enough to live on. Like what I've been given is not this great, beautiful world, but something small and and crooked and damaged. And how do we go on once we realize that? And so it was just figuring out like what the real set of questions were. But I'm sure I'm going to look at this story in two years and be like, oh, no, that wasn't it. It's this <laughs> other thing. <laughs> Well, well, as you say, the center changes as as we change. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to invite our listeners to join the conversation. What do you want to ask writer Brandon Taylor? You can ask about writing. You can ask about uh, his new work, Filthy Animals, or you might know him from his debut novel, Real Life. You can call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I read some of your newsletters, uh, Sweater Weather, and I was really struck by something you said in the essay that was called The Tiny White People in Our Heads, (laughs) where you write, I want to make a perfect stain of my inner consciousness before all the race stuff gets in the way. And I was wondering if that 
is almost like a through line in your goal as a writer. Yeah, I think it is. I, I, you know, I, it was interesting. I thought that I had done that with my first novel. I thought that I had written one of these like very contemporary novels of consciousness and that I had sort of captured something about the subjectivity of being an anxious young research scientist. But when that book went on, went out into the world, people were like, oh, this book is about race. And I was like, is it? <laughs> like, is like, is it, you know, the, the racism that's in the book didn't even really find its way in until like draft five or six during revision. Um, when I was trying to make sure that I was being truthful about the experience of being black on a Midwestern campus. And so it was quite strange to see that overwhelm the discourse around that novel. And so I feel that in some ways I'm still in search of being, you know, the, the form or the story that's going to let me make that perfect transposition of what's in my mind to the page before all of the, the machinery of like being a black, black subject witnessed by white people gets in the way. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, like, what are the biggest things that get in the way of that? I mean, I just think that it's, you know, like, it's sometimes when I sit down to write and I go to write a character, I'll be having a great time. And then I'll be like, okay, but like, how are white people going to perceive this? Are they going to think that this character is miserable because race in America? Or are they just going to view this character as a melancholic person moving through the world? And that's once I get stuck on a thought like that, I'm just constantly trying to figure out how to shut down, you know, white people's reading into my work, you know, as a parable of race. And then that just like distracts me from all of the the other more interesting questions involved in writing about contemporary consciousness and contemporary experience. And so to me, the the preoccupation with like what the white gaze will do to my work and how it will prefigure my work comes to be a real distraction that I have to like reset and get away from and then get back to the actual work of storytelling. And so those are some of the bigger things. Um, And it gets really tiring. Yes, (laughs) there's a cost, right? And you or we wonder how much of a cost there is in that process, right, of having to reset. Uh, Well, we are coming up on a break here. We'll have more with Brandon Taylor right after the break. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. you might call very good at hide and seek and since we got xfinity we have wi-fi all over the house even in my super secret hiding spots so i can kill time in here by streaming my favorite ha found you how you left to find my tablet on get wall-to-wall wi-fi on the xfinity 10g network restrictions apply not available in all areas actual speeds vary We're talking with Brandon Taylor about his new short story collection, Filthy Animals. Taylor is also the author of Real Life, a novel, and the newsletter, Sweater Weather. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. If you like, have any scenes from Brandon Taylor's work stayed with you? Or what questions do you have for him about his writing or his work? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. And you can email us, forum at kqed.org. And Eileen tweets, is the title Filthy Animals a reference to the movie Home Alone? 
Brandon yes, it is. yes, it is. Yes, it is. Um, and I can't take credit for even calling this book Filthy Animals. That credit belongs to my former roommate, Antonio Bird. He, um, he's like, you should write a story called Home, called Filthy Animals, like that thing from Home Alone. And I thought, <laughs> what a great idea. I will do that. And then I did. And and it's been the, the title ever since. <laughs> so wait a second. Where did the inspiration for Filthy Animals come from? Well, so I was, um, I was, when I was living in Madison, Wisconsin, I was complaining to my roommate about a certain kind of story that I hate. And it's always like characters in a room drinking like a lukewarm beverage from a styrofoam cup. And I called them like warm soda stories. And my roommate was like, you should write one. Just get this out of your system. Like write one of these stories and you should call it filthy animals. Like the home alone thing. And I was like, I don't even know what I would write that story about. He goes, write one of those like stories where a guy's in love with his best friend, you know, like what we used to feel when we lived in Alabama. And I thought, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to write this cheesy story. But then as I started writing it, I had so much fun. Um, And so, yeah, I I cannot take credit for the story or the title. My roommate gave me all those ideas. He was a really great roommate. (laughs) Wow. Well, I mean, it it is wonderful. I'm so glad to hear uh, how fun it was because as intense as the short stories are in Filthy Animals, they're... I don't know. There is just something about it that really moves. Um, And uh, I really appreciated that. I've also learned that you are writing a screenplay adaptation of your novel, Real Life. And and I was wondering if you've written screenplays and and if that writing process has been different for you. So I have never in my life written or even wanted to write a screenplay before um, this came around when we were in discussion with my film and TV agent to like thinking about selling the the film rights. I was talking to a friend of mine who's who does a lot of TV and film writing, and I was like, I don't know if I want to write it. And he goes, Well, if you think that you might ever want to, you should do this because this is like the thing, the one thing you're most qualified to adapt, just as a way of getting involved in that industry. And so, you know, I said yes that I would try, and it is quite different. It, it's a completely different form and a completely different, you know, there are a completely different set of constraints and, and it's been a really humbling education <laughs> in so many ways. How so? Oh, just in terms of like having to learn the vocabulary. I mean, the having to learn the narrative forms, the way that storytelling works. I mean, it's just quite different. Like when you're writing a thing that someone's going to maybe say on a screen one day, like there's just a whole different kind of pressure, you know, like when you're, when you're writing dialogue for a novel, I mean, there isn't this presupposition that anyone's ever going to have to say those words or do any of the, the maybe cringy things you have to write for them to do in a book. So it's, it's just a whole different set of pressure and anxiety I have about the narrative techniques. Well, uh, this listener writes, you have an entry in Sweater Weather called The Scammery of Representation. Could you explain the scam? Hmm. Mm, Yeah, so I think I was trying to unpack a lot of my complicated feelings around um, the way that publishing, the way that publishing right now seems set on increasing its diversity and the sort of increasing focus on representation as like an, an ethic in and of itself. And it just feels increasingly like in publishing a system that many people recognize as being like 
imperfect and flawed and morally dubious at times. I just feel like without doing a reappraisal of the values already at work in that system, when you just say that I'm going to represent you within that system, it's just like turning people into currency to be used by a potentially corrupt enterprise. (laughs) And I just think that it, I just think that in some ways it also subordinates the art and the artistry to some sort of outwardly visible set of tokens that can be exchanged on the marketplace. And so it, it feels like a very dubious and slippery enterprise and it's, you know, susceptible to the same facile machinery that all capitalism is. And so to me, it just feels increasingly like a scam when we focus so much on representation without an attendant reappraisal of the the underlying value systems. Yes, we almost sort of allow that to stand in for itself to some extent. Do you almost feel like, though, you know, writers of color are, are almost, that's almost like a forced part of the art, like we're almost forced into it without even our complicity. Um, when we do work or write about people, or, <laughs> that it almost feels like a, a prerequisite. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, well, a, a very clear example of this recently is that I, I was working on a, like a short story to be published at a magazine. And the editor, the sort of, I'm assuming like probably white editor was like, is it okay if we capitalize the B in black as per our, our style guide? And I was just like, well, I'm a black writer and I didn't capitalize it yet. You want to capitalize it because that is your style guide because some other black people told you that's what you should do. I don't under, you know, it's like the idea that like we can sort of take art um, written and created by people of color and then sort of run it through some quote unquote style guide so that it will be sort of presentable to a mass audience. Like it seems, I just feel like that, not that it's an inherently bad thing, but it feels like the fact that we don't stop to question that impulse and the fact that we don't stop to sort of kick the tires on it a little bit feels a little, you know, it's kind of Kafka-esque <laughs> in, a, in a sense. That, you know, I, I, what you're saying reminds me a little bit of what I read when you were talking about book covers and how those two start to almost have a certain expectation or uniformity to them. I'm wondering if you could sort of explain your take on book covers these days, especially books that are by people who are not straight, white, or <laughs> middle class. <laughs> yeah, my friend Angeline Rodriguez, who's a, who's an editor, she calls it POC tie-dye. And, <laughs> and I think these covers will be immediately recognizable to anybody. Like, you know, like there is this this aesthetic moment where books written by and about people of color and queer people and anyone who was not, as you said, like a straight white middle class, like these books have like these abstract like figures on them. And it's always like color swatches blended together. And it's like very not crude, but there's just something kind of rough and, and very strange about it. And I'm like, what is this about? Like, what is it about our art that makes you want to sort of slap an abstract, very kind of lyric figure on this book cover and not the kinds of covers that we see for, for other kinds of writers. And I've had to fight this fight in my own career as well. You know, like I had to have like a very robust dialogue with my editor and my agents. I write them like five page emails whenever the first covers come. And I'm like, 
this is this is offensive to me for the following 15 <laughs> reasons um and it gets it gets really down in the weeds like for example like i told my editor i was like i would rather never publish another book than have like a hand lettered font on my book because when you put hand lettering on a book by a black person it looks infantilizing like i just feel infantilized it's like why can't i have like a really bold like sans serif font like why can't i have like a Sally Rooney font or a Rachel Cusk font. Like, why do I have to have this font that looks like somebody wrote it in a slave journal in like the 1850s or something, you know? So it, it becomes, yeah. you know, I, I, I try to be very vigilant about it because the writers who've come before me, you know, they've told us these stories about how they've been marketed poorly or that they've had covers they didn't want and that they didn't feel that they had a voice. And it feels really important for me to use whatever voice I have to speak out about these things and to make sure that I'm standing up for myself because it'll be that much easier for the writer who comes after me, who has to have this fight. Wow. That's a lot to take on. It still (laughs) all brings me back though, to that point that you were making earlier about just wanting to be able to be the perfect stain of your consciousness and have that represented and reflected. This listener writes, how has your scientific background informed your work? Uh, referring to the fact that you were a former biochemistry doctoral student, right? How, how does I, your scientific background? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was. I Many, well, not that, like three years ago, I, I left that program. But yeah, I mean, it it informs my work in a lot of different ways. I think in terms of my nonfiction work, especially my PhD program in biochem was where I learned how to think on the paper, like think on paper and how to think critically and very deeply about complicated topics, how to read everything about a subject and then try to form an an informed opinion about it. Mm. Um, That very much comes from my scientific training. And I think in terms of the fiction, I think it's there too. Like whenever I sit down to write a story, I'm always trying to make sure that I'm being as precise, as clear, as lucid, as, you know, as, close to the grain as I possibly can be. And I think another thing that science taught me was how to how to hold contradictions in my mind and how to make sure that I'm not shying away from complexity or difficult topics or ideas. And so the science is, you know, it's there. I mean, maybe not in terms of subject matter, except maybe maybe real life it was there in subject matter, but certainly in my, I think, intellectual approach, it's, it's all science. Yeah, that is really interesting. And actually, this listener wants to know what tips you would give to aspiring fiction writers. And, and it's a question that we do get when we have writers on our program. But I have noticed that you do, like you do, you're very open and willing to share tips and, and things that you've learned along the way. Yeah. And part of that is just because I, for a long time, I wasn't in a writing program and I had to figure this stuff out myself. And so I always try to be very open about it because it'll help other people, you know, not have to trawl Tumblr for six months to find a tip on a piece of writing. Um, I think that when it comes to aspiring writers, I think the best tips I can give you are, you know, learn, learn how to work in a way that's best for you. Like, read about process. Yes. But like, don't read about process and then try to copy paste someone else's process onto you because it's just not going to work. So, you know, learn as much as you can, but ultimately figure out what's best for you. Um, and another thing, another great piece of advice that I was given by that same roommate who named both of my books (laughs) was, I know he, I mean, truly he is just the best. Um, 
He told me once, it's just a draft. Why are you so afraid of writing? You like to write. You're having fun writing. Don't let all the pressure get in the way. It's just a draft. You literally can fix anything with revision. And I went from immediately from someone who had never finished a draft of anything to finishing basically two books within one year, just because it was such a freeing piece of advice. And so I always tell people, it's just a draft. Just get it all out and then fix it in post. Like just draft, just go, swing freely. Um, And I think that those are two really important pieces of advice. Mm -hmm. Learn how you work and, and follow that. And two, it's just a draft. Don't don't spend all your time beating yourself up and feeling pressure. Just swing freely. Well, Mike writes, I'm an admirer of David Foster Wallace, who struggles with his nihilistic, cynical view of the relationship between writers and readers. Your guest exudes rays of hope. Does he have thoughts on David Foster Wallace? <laughs> um, I don't. I mean, the... Whenever I think of David Foster Wallace, I'm always forced to remember that the first time I went on a date with another man, um, he, instead of talking to me the entire time, gave me David Foster Wallace to read on his Kindle while he (laughs) hung out with my friends. Um, (laughs) And um, and so that's what I always think of when I I think of David Foster Wallace. I really like David Foster Wallace. I think that he was one of our great thinkers about what it is to be in a contemporary mediated society. And, and yeah, he's like very nihilistic and very cynical. And I think that he was right in a lot of ways, but I try, yeah, I try to be hopeful and optimistic and, (laughs) and I try to take things as they come. (laughs) We're talking with writer Brandon Taylor. His new short story collection is filthy animals. This listener writes, I think your critique on representation in publishing is very interesting. So what do you think is a good way for more BIPOC writers to publish books and receive the same support that they deserve? Yeah, I think that the onus, I think, first of all, importantly, the onus is not on the writers. It is on this very corrupt system (laughs) that we have. So it starts there. And I think that it starts with editors and agents listening to the writers and letting those writers follow their own and their own interests and follow the things that are important to them and then supporting those books. It's not even that there is a shortage of these writers. There are so many talented, brilliant writers. And it's really that those writers are not being given the opportunities and the support that they need to succeed. And so I think that it starts there with supporting these writers and letting them do what they want. And for me, I feel like the only reason I've been successful is because I have an agent who, when I told her what I wanted to do and and what was success on my terms, she supported me and backed me 100%. And I got an editor who backed me 100% and a publisher who backed me 100%. And and I feel like that is the only reason I've had the career I've had is because I don't think I'm that special. I just think that I've been really lucky in that I have a team who supports me and believes in me. And I think that Every writer deserves that. And I think that by and large, we see that BIPOC writers simply do not get the support that they deserve. And so I think that it starts there, not listening to quote unquote conventional wisdom, but supporting these writers and letting these artists create in ways that feel true and authentic to them. Is there something that you're most proud of in your new book, whether it be in terms of story technique that you used or or just trying to reach that emotional truth? I think the thing that I'm most proud of 
is, is one that I got to publish a book of short stories. That was always a dream of mine. And I think getting to share Lionel with the world is really important to me. I think that Lionel, I'm so proud of that character and I'm so proud um, of the journey he goes on in the book. And I'm so just proud of that. I was able to follow my own convictions about what his story should look like and not to sort of cater to anyone else. And he really does feel like a real true authentic person to me. And, and I'm most proud of that. That's, that's really lovely. I, Lionel really is in just this incredibly quiet yet incredibly powerful way. Um, understandably why you connect so many stories uh, throughout the short story collection while they stand on their own, they all do, con uh, there's a big chunk of them that do connect back to Lionel in some way. Was that your original plan or did it kind of emerge that way? Yeah, so the, um, yeah, it's interesting. The The first version, Originally, the, the Lionel Charles Sophie stories lived in another manuscript. And then there were these unrelated stories and filthy animals. Yeah. And then just over the years, it just seemed possible to combine the two manuscripts. Um, and and once I once I made that decision to merge those two manuscripts, immediately it was very clear to me that that's what the shape of the book should be. But I knew from the outset that, you know, Lionel would occupy many, many stories. I, I couldn't let him go. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for giving us Filthy Animals, Brandon Taylor. Really appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Brandon Taylor, writer of Filthy Animals, also debut novel, was real life and uh, was lovely to talk with you. Listeners, do stay with us for another segment. We'll just be checking in on the latest with what happened with Britney Spears this week and what it says about conservatorship. So stay with us for that. This is Forum. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hi, I'm Tyler Foggett. Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following The Political Scene, available now wherever you get your podcasts.